people of God had been in exile, they're coming home to Jerusalem. They see the steps leading into the temple, and as they ascend each one, they pray and give praise to God. They teach us how to pray and praise God in difficult times. Join us for this series every Wednesday night, 6 o'clock. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study as we continue drawing near the end of our study of the beautiful and wonderful Psalms of Ascent. We are tonight in Psalm 132, and after tonight, we have two Psalms left in this study of the Psalms of Ascent. I am so grateful that so many of you have joined us each and every Wednesday night. We're so glad that we have the technology to provide this teaching to you on Wednesday night, and this teaching will continue beyond our study of the Psalms of Ascent. Most of the Psalms of Ascent, as I'm sure you have noticed, are given to us in, in relatively short and staccato form. Uh, they are not long Psalms. They're not even close to the longest of the Psalms, Psalm 119. But even the typical Psalms that in our way of placing verses in the Psalms may be 25 to 30 to 35 verses in the Psalm, the Psalms of Ascent only have five, six, seven verses. And then we come to this Psalm, uh, this Psalm 132, that is the longest of the Psalms of Ascent and it is the one that uh, seemingly stands out from the rest. It is longer for a reason. And the reason is that in this Psalm of Ascent, we have a relatively short and succinct, but nonetheless, an overview of what we call biblical theology. Biblical theology is the understanding of who God is and what God does from the perspective of the Bible. What does the Bible teach us about God? Beginning in Genesis, going all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, what is God's story, the history of God, if you will, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Who is God and what does God do? Interwoven in that is also the question, why does God do what he does? Well, we find in Psalm 132 a rather succinct, but a very clearly stated biblical theology. So let me read Psalm 132 for us now. We will pray and we will look at this Psalm of Ascent. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes 
or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priest be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame but on him his crown will shine. Father, the marvel of your word is found in places like Psalm 132. Because here we can read in this one psalm the entirety of what we find proclaimed for us throughout your word from the beginning to the ending. So here in this psalm, written multiplied hundreds of years before Jesus was born, we can read and reflect on the coming of Jesus. And not only can we read and reflect on the coming of Jesus, we can recognize and remember and rejoice on what Jesus came to do as the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior of his people, the Lord and ruler and sovereign over all. It is a psalm like this that encapsulates for us the entirety of the story of scripture and moves us in these moments, even now, not to bow before the Bible to worship it, but to bow before you and to worship you because of the beauty and majesty of your inerrant, infallible, and fully and completely sufficient word. Teach us in these moments out of the goodness of your greatness and grace to us in Jesus Christ, to whom this psalm points in line after line, and in word after word. And we pray in his name and for the glory of your great name. Amen. When I think about the psalm, I think about that great hymn, Standing 
on the promises, standing on the promises of Christ my God, standing on the promises that come to us through his eternal word. Uh, this psalm is about the promises of God, and it unfolds for us in three movements. The Passion of David, chapter 132, verses 1 through 5. The Passion of David. The Purpose of God, verses 6 through 10. And then the remainder of the psalm, verses 11 through 18, the promise of God and the fulfillment of those promises upon which we stand and we can stand firmly and we can stand forever. The passion of David, the purposes of God, the promises of God and the fulfillment of those promises ultimately in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look first of all at the passion of David and to understand the passion of David, we must understand the promise that God made to David and we must understand the promise that God made to David in the context of the covenant that God had made with his people. So let's look first, very briefly, we have done this numerous times throughout our study of the Psalms of Ascent, but let's just remember very briefly that the Bible is in fact the unfolding of the covenant promises of God that God makes with his people. The, the Bible opens with a covenant. It is a covenant that God made with Adam and Eve in the garden. And we call this covenant the covenant of works. It is the only covenant like it in the entire Bible because God gave it to us to demonstrate his goodness and the face of our failures. The covenant was very simple. I'm placing you, Adam and Eve, in this garden, this beautiful, almost magical, majestic garden, where in this garden you have everything that you need to sustain life in the beauty of this garden forever and ever. There's only one prohibition in this garden. Everything else is there for you. I've given you this garden. You give me your obedience. You be faithful to me and refrain from eating the fruit of this one tree. But Adam and Eve given this covenant that we call the covenant of works. And God says, I will give to you everything you need. You must do for me and with me and for the glory of my name, that which I ask you to do, which basically is delighting in me and my goodness and refraining from doing the one thing that is evil that I have called you not to do. And Adam and Eve failed in this covenant of works. Uh, that would open the door for the unfolding of the rest of the Bible, which is not a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace, a covenant in which God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And it is a covenant that God makes in his holy and righteous character with sinful and fallen human beings. 
Uh, once Adam fell in the garden, there is no hope for any human anywhere at any time unless God does for us by his grace what we cannot do for ourselves. The first thing God does is he makes a covenant uh, after the, uh, the, the flood. He makes a covenant with Noah, and the covenant with Noah is a creation covenant. It is a covenant with all the world. It is that kind of covenant in which God says to uh, the world through the preservation of Noah and his family that he will never again judge the world as he judged the world in the flood until the very end of time. From that moment forward, the creation will be preserved. The creation will be protected. The common grace and goodness of God will flow into the world and out of the world, God will save a people for himself by his grace. And he indicates that and seals that through a covenant that he makes with Abraham. Abraham is called to God in a covenant relationship out of the grace and goodness of God. And Abraham is called to walk with God faithfully and to trust God. And God grows Abraham in his faith until Abraham is brought to the place where he has learned that the best way to live in the world is to trust God and to obey God. So he takes Isaac up the mountain as a sacrifice to God because he knows that even if he offers his son in sacrifice, God will raise him from the dead. He has learned what kind of God our God is. Our God is a God of loving kindness and faithfulness and goodness and grace and mercy and kindness and all of those things because he is a God who is good to those who do not deserve his goodness, is kind to those who do not deserve his kindness. God makes a covenant with Abraham. God makes a covenant with Moses, a, a covenant that shows us the standard of righteousness that God requires. He embodies it in, its, in his law, and we cannot meet that standard, and that covenant is a good and gracious covenant because it demonstrates to us that if we're going to be right with God, it will not be what we do by keeping the law because we can't keep the law. We are driven to God to be dependent on his grace. The covenant of Moses that we cannot keep points us to the new covenant. And that new covenant is proclaimed for us in texts like, in, in books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. That new covenant points us to Jesus. The fulfillment of all the covenants that God makes with his people. Jesus comes and lives the perfect life that we cannot live. He is the final Adam, the second Adam, the perfect Adam. He is that one who does in the garden of this world what we cannot do in keeping fully and perfectly the law. He qualifies himself as the son of God who fulfills the purposes of God to offer himself on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. But sinners need something more than our sins forgiven. We need to have uh, someone take our place in order to bear the punishment for our sin that we deserve, Jesus becomes that sacrifice for our sins and that substitute for the sinners for whom he dies on the cross. Now, there is another covenant that we skipped over, we come back to now, because God entered into a covenant with David. And it was the covenant that promised that there would always be a king to sit on the throne of David. And we read about this covenant in 2 Samuel. 
If you were to take your Bibles, and I would encourage you to do so, take your Bibles and go back to Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. And you read in Second Samuel chapter 7, in verse 14, um, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he comes, uh, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, listen to this, and your house and your kingdom, verse 16, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, God makes a promise to David that there will always be someone who will be king as sovereign, who rules, who will sit upon the throne of David. And that promise to David prompted in David a passion. And that passion was to provide a place for God, to provide a place where God could dwell among his people upon the earth. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And three times, using the first person singular pronoun I, this is the vow of David. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give, my, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. This was David's passion. Uh, the, the symbolic presence of God dwelling among his people upon the earth was found in the Ark of the Covenant. And David was the one who brought the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the dwelling place of God upon the earth, uh, to the ancient city of Jerusalem, the city of God. And the Ark, representing where God dwells, was brought by David, the holy presence of God. You remember that when the Ark was on the way back to the city and it was being transported on a cart that as the oxen went through this area that was rather wet from the rains and rather rocky and muddy and the cart began to rock and the ark began to shake and Uzzah accompanying the ark reached out to touch the ark and when he touched the ark with great intentions to steady the ark upon the wavering cart, God struck him dead. Ark, the, Uzzah was trying to keep the ark from falling into the mud, uh, the dirt, the scum of the earth. R.C. Sproul says that Uzzah made a fatal error because Uzzah assumed that the mud of the earth was more of a mess than was his sinful hand, that it was worse than who he was as a sinner. So when a sinful human without mediation or mediator touched that ark, 
He was touching that which symbolized the holy character of God, and he received what happens when we touch on our own, by ourselves, at our own initiative, the holy character of God. We receive death. The wages of sin is death. David's passion. David's passion was to get the Ark of the Covenant into the sacred city so that the Ark representing the presence of God would have a dwelling place. As the Ark would make its way into the ancient city of Jerusalem, Michael, David's wife, whom he had sought as his wife and now had as his wife, she saw David dancing before the Ark, rejoicing before the ark, and she saw it as a travesty. And yet David had such a passion for the presence of God to dwell among his people that when confronted by his wife, he said to her, I will do this and more because of what the ark represents of the presence and power of God among his people. What's your passion level for God? What's your passion level when Saturday afternoon comes and Sunday's on its way and you know what Sunday is? It's not your day. It's the Lord's day. And you know on this day that what you're going to do on this day, this Lord's Day, every Lord's Day, what you're going to do is you're going to demonstrate the passion of your heart. You're going to show on this day the priorities of your life. You're going to show what's at the center of concern, what moves you and stirs you. And you can't wait for Sunday to come because on the Lord's Day and most churches, well, it used to be most churches, now it's just some churches you get this great privilege morning and evening to gather before the throne of God with the people of God to worship and rejoice in the goodness and grace of God. How passionate are we for God? This psalm shows us the purpose of God. Behold, we heard of it, that is, of the ark of the presence of God in Ephrathah, or Bethlehem. We found it in the fields of Jair, the community that kept the ark for a time, Kiriath-Jerim. Let us go to this, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. The dwelling place of God is in heaven. The ark represents his footstool, the rule and reign of God, stretches from heaven above to the earth below. Arise, O Lord, verse 8, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And the purpose of God is to dwell among his people so that his people can gather before him on the earth and rejoice in his greatness and majesty and magnificence, his holiness, his righteousness, his kindness, his goodness, from heaven above reaching all the way down to where we are on earth. And he gathers his people under the leadership of those who are given the call and command to be 
the spiritual leaders of the people of God. So God says here, verse nine, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints, that is the people of God, shout for joy for the sake of your servant, David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The anointed one is a Hebrew phrase for the Messiah. Do you see the picture here? The passion of David was to see the dwelling place of God in its proper place upon the earth. And the purpose of God is to gather his people to that dwelling place as they are led by their spiritual leaders to encounter God and be encountered by God in the place of worship, the center of which is the anointed one, the Messiah. The center of worship is the exalting of the one who is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus himself. Passion of David is because of the purpose of God. And David understands the purpose of God to gather his people in his presence before him that they might praise him, that they might hear his word taught and preached, that they might be encouraged and exhorted, that they might grow in the grace and knowledge of God, that they might be inspired by the Holy Spirit in the midst of worship to go again into the world as his witnesses, so as through their lives and their lips to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the promises of God and the fulfillment of those promises. The promises of God are about a king and about a kingdom and about the way and word and work of that kingdom. Look at verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, David, I will set on your throne. This is a king. Who is this king? We know who this king is. Exalted in holiness and righteousness. This is King Jesus. This king has this king has a kingdom. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne, for the Lord has chosen Zion. Zion is that symbolic name for the eternal people of God who dwell in the presence of God, who worship before the king because they belong to his kingdom. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has chosen his people for himself to bring under the authority of the king to live together in his kingdom. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. God is king. He rules over his people. God has a kingdom on this earth. We pray, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That kingdom of God is manifest in and through his church. The church is not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is manifest through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to find where God is. You want to find where God is at work. You want to see what is 
God is doing? You want to be a part of what God is doing? You say you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you love him and serve him and you're not a part of a church. You're not even a part of the kingdom because the kingdom is manifest through his church. To belong to Jesus is to belong to his church. Not to belong to actively involved in a church is simply a way of saying, don't listen to my words because my words betray what's in my heart. I don't belong to the king. The king loves his kingdom. Jesus loves his church. Verse 15, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. God gives to his people who are a part of his kingdom everything that we need to honor him and to exalt him and to serve his purpose in the world. And then verse 18, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Not everybody's in the kingdom. Not everybody belongs to Jesus. And those who don't belong to Jesus often find that they fight against King Jesus. And that fight often is against his people, the church. Some of the more hostile enemies of God are people who with their lips say, I love Jesus, but with their lives defy his church and deny the importance of his church. David had a passion for there to be a dwelling place of God among his people. God's purpose was to gather his people to himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might fulfill his purposes. God made a promise that a king was coming to establish his kingdom upon the earth and that God would provide for that king everything that he needed to establish his kingdom until at last in God's own time, all the kingdoms of this world would be overwhelmed by the kingdom of God and of his Messiah. And the kingdoms of this world would be obliterated, cast into the eternal darkness of dominated by the demons of hell. And the kingdom of God would be and will be established upon this earth. And the king will rule as sovereign. And those who belong to kingdom, to the kingdom and to the king will rule and reign with him forever, even so come King Jesus. We look forward to that day when you will be enthroned as the king of all of the universe so that those who love you and serve you now will see you then in all of your glory and we will rejoice and we will reign with you forever and ever. Oh God, bring that day, we pray. Bring that day, we pray when we will have the joyful privilege of ruling and reigning with you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks, my friend, for joining us. We'll see you again next week.